My name is uh, Joe. I'm one of the elders here. Um, it's my privilege uh, to get to preach today. Um, so if you would turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2, um, we are going to sort of be circling back from where Jack took us last week uh, to touch upon uh, Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. Um, I think that this is uh, kind of going to be a fitting end to our time in Haggai. Um, the, the, today, this morning, we are going to touch on some of the main themes that we have covered in the other sermons. We're going we're to talk about the temple, about God's covenant with his people, about God's providence, and about the Messiah. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll be in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You may be seated and let's pray. So Lord, we come to you seeking to hear your truth today. And so Father, we pray that you would open up our ears to hear your word. Lord, we ask that you would use uh, my voice to speak your words. And Lord, we, we beg that uh, your word would not return void, but it would accomplish the purpose that you have set for it. We pray that we would be transformed into the image of your lovely son, Jesus, as we hear your word. And we pray that this word would shape our weeks and our lives and our days and our moments, that our thoughts would be different, that our feelings would be different that our hopes and dreams and aspirations and everything about who we are would be different because of your word. So, Father, use this time to make us more like you. Amen. So, uh, we are going to sort of uh, set a foundation here that's beginning with the very date, the very first words of um, our passage today. Our passage today begins with the date, and, 
And that this oracle's dating is important for two main reasons. The first is that it places the oracle within a certain context, and that context shapes its purpose. And so it begins in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. And I know that we're all experts in the Jewish calendar. So what happens in the seventh month on the 15th day of the month and lasts for seven days? I didn't know either, right? Um, but if you think about it, if it starts on the 15th, it lasts for seven days. That means the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st. So this is the last day of that event that is happening that begins on the 15th day of the seventh month. If you turn to Leviticus 23, you don't need to do that because I'll read it here. It says this. It says, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, so this is a harvest festival, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and, and bows of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before their Lord your God seven days. This is Leviticus 29, 39 through 43. Be- beginning again in verse 41. You shall celebrate it, it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booze for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booze. Booth is a tent that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of the out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this feast that was just described in Leviticus 23, 39 through 43, is the Feast of Booze, or the Feast of the Ingathering, the Feast of Harvest, or the, the Feast of Tabernacles is how sometimes it's referred to. It was a celebration of the harvest and a reminder to the people, the, the people of God that it was Yahweh who had delivered them out of the land of Egypt and made them dwell in the land and enjoy its produce. The feast was a tangible reminder that it was God who had done these things for them. It was El Roy, the God who sees, who looked upon the captive Israelites in Egypt and remembered their humble estate. It was El Shaddai, God Almighty, who had defeated the Egyptian gods with plague upon plague that marked the Egyptians and marred them and left them reeling while the people of God went untouched. It was Yahweh Nissi, the Lord, my banner, who confused the Egyptians when the Israelites were trapped between the army of Egypt and the Red Sea, and who drowned the might of the Egyptians in a flood that washed away their wickedness from this world while the people of God went over on dry land. It was Yahweh Ra'ah, the Lord, my shepherd, who guided the people through a dry and barren wilderness, feeding them with his food and giving them of his drink and protecting them from plundering wolves. And it was Yahweh, Yireh, the Lord will provide, who brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of promise, a land of their fathers, a typological land to call home 
so that from them the whole world might be blessed. And so this is our point one. This is the first thing that we're going to see today, the Feast of Booze. It is a feast to remember the provision, power, and purpose of your covenant-keeping God for his people. And this feast began on the 15th day of the seventh month. And our oracle today happened on the 21st day of the seventh month. So after six full days of remembering and of hearing the scriptures read concerning the great deliverance of God, who performed this to bring his son Israel out of Egypt, after seven days of dwelling in tents that shall remember what God has done, and of missing, seven days of missing because of the punishment of God, the normal feasting from their land flowing with milk and honey. On the seventh day of this feast, the very last day, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai the prophet. So how does the oracle begin? It begins with with telling Haggai who to speak to. He says, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. So the audience of this oracle is the whole congregation. It's everyone. It's Zerubbabel, king in the line of David. It's Joshua, priest in the line of Aaron. And it is the people, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of promise. So to summarize our foundation here, the oracle comes at the end of a festival designed to remember that God is their covenant Lord, the king who reigns from on high. And it's to get each successive generation of Israel familiar with the details of what this means. It is a time to remember. And the oracle is given to the whole people. So this oracle has its context in the liturgical calendar of the Jews. It's a pattern of remembering, of celebrating, and worshiping in covenant with God. And as you will see here in a minute, the content of the prophecy actually harkens back to important moments in the timeline of that covenant. So our first stop in the timeline is Solomon's temple, which we see in in verse 3. You can think of Solomon's temple as a.k.a. the former glory. That would be its rap name. Yep. Um, So (laughs) this this is how he begins the formal part of his oracle. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Former glory. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, for whatever reason, this is a scene that's very easy for me to imagine. I like imagining old men with awesome long beards and gray hair. Because that's what Jewish men are to me. They're these awesome old men with great beards. And you have Haggai standing there in front of the people on the Temple Mount. And he motions with his hands for everyone to see who saw this house in its former glory. And before them is not a house that's glorious. Before them is a house that's barely rebuilt. But it is important that we see that he is there at the Temple Mount. He's there. And, and I want us to see a, a way that he's talking about it. Uh, if you look in 2.3, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? In 2.7, he says, I will fill this house with glory. 
In 2.9, he says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. In this place I will give peace, is the other thing he says in 2.9. So there appears to be one house, this house. And it appears that the states associated with this have a former and now and a latter element to it. You have a former house, that's Solomon's temple. You have a now house, the house that is being rebuilt. And you're going to have this latter house, this house that is yet to come. There is always just one house, though. It's the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It persists. It remains among the people of God continually. But how it is manifest among the people appears to change over time. A single house of God changing over time. You have former, you have now, you have latter, but always this house. So get back to imagining the scene in your mind of of the old Jewish man with the long gray beard, one of those hats. He's addressing the crowd, and he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? So what is going on? Who would have been able to see the house in its former glory before the Babylonians brought it to the ground? Old people. That's who. Even old people by our standards today. The the temple of the former glory was destroyed in 586 BCE. This oracle probably happened in 520 BCE. So someone had to be at least 70-ish years old to even remember what the temple would have looked like. 70. And then they would have been four when they saw it for the first time. This temple, the now temple, is not complete. It is just in some state of partial construction. Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people have just been working on it for a month. And it, and it will take them about four more years to complete it. So, so back to the old people. Why do you think God, through Haggai, addressed them? Why did he, he talk to them specifically like this? What did they have that needed to be shared with God's people? They knew something about the present circumstances, and it needed to be said. They were able to reflect on their past experiences and bring them to the present to God's people. They had voices that needed to be heard. They had wisdom that needed to be shared. Their insights mattered. Their memory mattered. And the same is true for us today. We need older saints who can speak wisdom into our present circumstances. We need to hear their voices. We need their wisdom. Their insights matter. Their memory matters. So two things that I want us to to see from from this. Haggai's address to the older folks in the congregation. If you are older, and all of us are older than someone, but if you are older, find someone younger to share with. You don't have to feel like you have all the answers, or you even know all the questions that can be asked, or you don't even have to be a great speaker. All you need to have is a memory. All you need to have is an experience of God that you can share with other people. That is the single criteria. 
God has a plan and a purpose for you, and it is to help other people. Now, if you are younger, this is the second thing, find someone older to learn from. They don't have to have written a book or speak at conferences or be fabulously rich or materially successful. They just still need to be breathing, and you can learn something from them. Their life matters, and their life has something for you today that you would not have known otherwise without them. And so younger people go to those who are older and learn from their wisdom. So Haggai recalls the former glory of this house because the old people would know. They would know what it was like, and he compares it with the now glory. And he is expecting the old among them to give an answer. What do they say in response to his questioning? It is it not as nothing in your eyes? The temple, by comparison, is a no, a nothing, a nada, zip, zilch, a zero, a big fat old goose egg. In fact, the old among the people wept over the new house. If you look at Ezra 3, 10 through 13, it says this. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites and the son of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, which is great because we just did that today. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. When they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It was a good thing. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's houses, the old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. That was Ezra 3, 10 through 13. Now here is the big question. Why is God calling the people to see the meekness of his restoration? Why is he bringing to the forefront of their minds the smallness of their accomplishment? What is God trying to communicate to them? I'm going to submit three things, and each of them is going to be a little sub-point here. The first is this. God doesn't need you to paint a pretty picture of your circumstances. God sees things as they truly are. And that should free us to be honest with God in our prayers and with ourselves and our own thoughts and with others in conversation. We are freed up from having to put on pretenses because God sees things as they are. We don't have to share only the good stuff. We can be a spin-free zone. We don't have to try to turn everything to a good thing. We can be transparent. And as we truly are, because before God, that is all we are, is what we truly are. The second little sub-point that I want us to see is that God doesn't need you to beat out other saints in good works to prove that you love him. You don't need to be better than anyone else. God asks for faithfulness to the task he has called you to. You should, you should feel totally free if you feel like you're a nobody from nowhere who does nothing. 
If God has called you to that task, if God has called you to that life, you can and you should serve the Lord with gladness and maximum effort in that work. Colossians 3, 23 through 24, speaking to slaves, speaking to people owned by other people, said, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so in whatever we are called to, church, we are to work excellently. We are to give it our all, not in an effort to beat out other people or to be better than anyone else, but because that is the task that God has called us to. That is the plow that Jesus has put our hands on. And the third uh, little sub-point here is that God doesn't need the powerful or the well-placed or talented or smart to accomplish his purposes. God will accomplish what he seeks to do, even with a meek and mild temple. He will make it so that the former glory is as nothing to the latter glory. So now we're going to turn to, to verse 4. And in, in verse 4, we have a bit of transition here. After a bit of brutal honesty from the Lord through Haggai and the memory of the, the older folks in the congrega- congregation, Haggai begins with a yet. Yet, now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So this is the third point, that that God has not brought out and brought up the painfulness of the present to discourage the people. The honesty that God seeks is not meant to cripple, but to embolden. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says... For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is exactly the type of message God is communicating to the people in their present moment. He has spoken to the people at this house. And he's just reminded them that this now glory is less glorious than the former glory of Solomon's temple. They have weaknesses, they have insults, they have hardships, they have persecutions, and they have calamities today. And in the midst of these things, God commands three times in verse 4 to be strong. Instead of discouragement, instead of wanting the people to go, oh man, the glory of this house is terrible. Look at all these old people. They say it, it's nothing. God doesn't want them to be discouraged. God commands obedience. God commands them to work. And all of this is grounded in the presence of God with his people. And the promises of his covenant that he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt. That should remind us of the Feast of Booze. All native Israelites shall dwell in booze. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booze when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so this, I, I hope that this reminds us of something that happened when Israel 
left their booze behind in the wilderness. They were right across the Jordan. And Jesus said something very similar to another man named Joshua. Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9 says this. Joshua 1, 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses is his assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan. So leave, leave your booze behind, enter the promised land. You and all this people, so Joshua and all the people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness, so where they're at now, and, and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward, uh, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. So this huge stretch of land. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn, turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Third time here. Third time he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So we have the same exact admonitions. Be strong. I am with you as I covenanted. I brought you out of Egypt. Fear not. The, so, so we have Joshua 1, 1 through 9 is the same as what he has said in Haggai 2, 4 and 5. The parallels just don't end there. In the present day, the people are ending their time reliving the experiences of Israel in the wilderness, living in tents. And in Joshua's day, they are just about to end their time in the wilderness, in tents. And they're about to cross the land into the promised land. In the present day, the people have recently gone through a period of punishment for disobedience and not building the temple. And in Joshua's day, The people have just finished undergoing punishment for rebelling against God and his servant Moses when they should have made war with confidence against the inhabitants of the promised land 40 years prior. Both present day and Joshua's day have a Joshua, which means salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And if you didn't already know this, Joshua, written in Greek, is J-E-S-U-S. Jesus. So isn't that something? Isn't God trying to tell us something here? And I think it's this. God does not give up on his people. He does not give up on us. And we can look back on the past faithfulness of God to Joshua 
and to Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of the people. And we can say with confidence that God does not give up on his people and he will not give up on me. Though I stumble and fall in this wilderness of my sojournings, God has the same promises and the same power for me today that he had for them back then. And so do you hear the encouragement of your God and your Savior, Jesus Christ, today? He is saying, be strong. And he is giving you strength. He has commanded you to work. And he is making that work possible by working in you and through you. He is reminding you of his covenant with you, which he cut with his death upon a cross. And he is saying to you today that you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. He is saying that you have nothing to fear. For he who did not spare his own son will freely give you all things. Do you believe this? Please, please believe this. Your life, your eternal happiness, your soul depends that you believe this. That Jesus is for you and he has done great things on your behalf. And I hope today that you can see that this book, this Bible, this book right here, right? This guy. Every single part of it. Not just the New Testament, every single part of it is for you, Christian. It's for you. It is yours. And so as we close, I have one last thing to show. Beginning in verse 6, it says, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and fill this house with, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And here we have a, a genuine prophecy. This is definitely future-looking. Right? This is something that will either happen or not happen. This will either be verified as true or verified as false. Deuteronomy 18.22 says this, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, as Haggai is doing in this, as a public mouthpiece, as a, the bearded Jewish man on the temple mount, if, if the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word of the Lord Uh, A word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And so we can ask, did this prophecy that Haggai spoke come true? I want to explore three yeses with you. Three ways that this prophecy has come true. That it came true immediately. If you look at Ezra 6, it teaches us this. I can't read all of it because of time, but know that the enemies of God in, in the, the context of this had, had been trying to delay and defeat Israel in building the house of the Lord. They had even written a letter to appear to Darius, the king, by speaking falsely about God's chosen nation. They were lying about the people to stop the temple. But Darius, like a good king, he investigates 
and he learns that Cyrus had written this decree. And in this decree, there was a curse upon any person who would alter the decree of Cyrus, the old king. And what Cyrus had decreed was that the, the restoration of the temple would be paid with the king's own money. And so do you know what Darius did? The greatest king of the world. He, he, he ruled over at least 40% of all people that lived at that time. All the way from uh, India to Europe, Darius was king. He was king of the whole world. What he did is he bankrolled the building of the temple. God shook the world as a harvester might a tree. And he brought in the treasures of the nations to build his temple. The silver was God's and the gold was God's. And God did what he had promised. Yes, the prophecy came true. And so my question is, in what way do you need to experience Jesus is Yahweh Yireh. The Lord will provide. What can you trust him for? He provided a way for Israel to rebuild the temple. He will come through for you in providing everything you need for your obedience. Jesus will be to you Yahweh Yireh. And yes, Haggai was a true prophet, but there's another yes for us to explore. There is this whole part about the house being filled with glory. And that's a clear reference to the filling of the house in its former glory with the cloud. If you remember back to uh, when Solomon dedicated the temple, they had just killed hundreds of, of beasts. And they had made this great fire and there's this great prayer. And then the cloud comes down and fills the temple with glory. It fills it to such a degree that, that the priests who are there, they have to run away because it's so, it's so beautiful to behold. It's so fearful. It's so mighty. It's so powerful. But as we read Ezra and the other post-exilic books, there is no such filling of the temple with the glory of the Lord. Where is the glory? Where is it? That's because this part of the prophecy didn't happen immediately. A lot of times in prophecy, that's this, this um, uh, idea of what's called telescoping, right? So uh, the, the prophet's looking way out into the future. They're seeing stuff, and as they're seeing it, you know, if, if you look, sometimes, right, there's a planet, like, in front of a planet, and they look like they're next to each other, but they're not because they're so far away. It's a telescope thing. Um, and so you see something really, really far away next to something that's closer next to something that's closer. And, and the same thing is happening here. Uh, Haggai is telescoping. So he's seen something up front. He's seen how Darius will provide. But he's also seen something a little bit farther away. Something, I guess, roughly 500-ish years away. And that, what he saw, what he saw didn't happen until the man. Born of the Virgin Mary, who, as Hebrews 1-3 tells us, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This man walks into the temple and he cleanses it from all its impurities. 
he invites the impure into it in Matthew. That's what Matthew tells us. And he cleanses the lepers. He heals the sick. He mends the lame in the temple. And he makes it a place of peace. And so did not only the glory of God return to the temple with Jesus, and it at least matched that former glory when the Holy Spirit filled that previous temple with his glory. I would argue that it rivaled that this this glory that Jesus brings is better than that former glory. Because you know what Jesus does? Jesus climbs upon a cross, and he pays for our sins. And his death rips apart the curtain that separates us from the holiness of God. The holy of holies. This curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And the Lord spills out his glory from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The latter glory of the house was greater than the former. And we see that in the person of Jesus And in what ways, then, do you need to experience Jesus as your El Shaddai? Your God Almighty, who makes the way for your salvation. Psalm 58 promises that he will break the teeth of your accusers. The devil. He will break his teeth in his mouth. He will make him vanish like water that runs away on dry ground. Jesus will make him like a snail that dissolves into slime as he moves across the ground. Jesus will do that for you. Experience Jesus as your El Shaddai, your God Almighty. Yes, Haggai was a true prophet. But there's one more yes for us to look at yet. There is one more thing for us to see. In this prophet, in this prophecy in Haggai, we also have a prophecy of the end of the age and a call to everyone here in this room to have faith, believe in Jesus, the Son of God. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Jesus is speaking today. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from on earth, he's talking about Moses warning the people, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, quoting Haggai, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And so what Haggai is seeing here in his telescoping of his present and in Jesus and in this future, he is seeing the end of the age. He is seeing our Lord and Savior come again and bringing about his rule and reign forever. And the the writer of Hebrews sees this. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews continues in verse 28 of the 12th chapter, he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, church, let's heed the voice of Jesus Christ. 
the one who warns us from heaven. And let us believe. For the day is coming. And it is surely coming. We know it as certainly as we see these two other prophecies. This is another yes in the prophecy of Haggai. That God will come again. And when he comes again, when Jesus, our Savior, comes again, there will no longer be any time to repent and to turn and to be saved. So church, do not reject this Jesus, but instead repent and believe. Offer to him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And if you do, his promise today, his promise today, if you repent and believe, is that you will receive a kingdom that cannot, that will not be shaken. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so wonderful. We are so grateful at how well it reads our own souls. How it cuts us so deep and draws us into your presence. We are so grateful that you are so gentle with us. And yet you are a consuming fire. We stand before you as nothing. The works of our hands are meek and mild and of no value. But God, you give us great value. Your son makes everything new. Your word says that in Christ we are new creations. We are born again. And everything, everything matters now because of what Jesus has done. So Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to trust in you for all things. Help us to turn from our wickedness and our sinful ways. And help us to cast ourselves upon the cross of Christ. It is our only hope. It is our only comfort. It is our only joy. It is our only means of salvation. And so, Lord, we believe and we trust in you. Amen.